All right, so here's the subject. And this is my last installment for a little while. This is installment, I don't know, number four or five. The big idea, impactful, eternal influence. You have it. The question is, will you exercise it? The world needs it. The question is, will you be an agent of influence and impact in it? I said it last week, the world is a hurting and broken place. You don't have to read many news feeds and you don't have to be involved in the world of people very long for you to recognize that people are hurting. And you are an antidote in part to that pain because you bring to the table assets that preserve the things that matter and curb the things that break. You are, according to Jesus... The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you are something, therefore you need to be something, and the guarantee is your life will mean something. You're not impotent. You are, according to Jesus, you are, present active indicative, it's a declaration of reality. If you're a Christian and you're a kingdom citizen, you are the salt of the earth. It is a figure that the people who heard it would clearly understand. You are a picture of purity. You're a powerful preservative. You're a prompter of pleasure like seasoning in life. You are a provoker of thirst because salt makes people thirsty. You are something. The world needs what you are. Jesus said, unless you lose your saltiness, unless you've become tasteless, in which case... You're good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. No value. Or if you have any value, it's as a walking space. And the figure there in Matthew chapter 5 has to do with people seeing no value in you, just tossing you aside, tossing you out. You can add the word contempt. You can add the thought of somebody rolling their eyes. What in the world? This person has no value, no impact It's not useful except to be tossed aside. Luke 14, salt is good, said Jesus. It's good unless it's become tasteless. It's lost its potency. How can you re-season it and enliven it and empower it again? Very difficult to do. It's not good for anything, not for the soil to promote growth and not for the manure pile to inhibit corruption. Not good for anything. And then he finishes it up by saying, if you have ears, you need to hear this. Salt is good unless it's not salty. Salt is valuable unless it's not on something to impact and influence something. So we began some challenging thoughts, and I hope some encouraging ones, to help you recognize that in a fallen, broken world, in the world in which you traffic in, go to school in, go to work in, play sports in, The world in which you live needs what you are. Therefore, you need to be what you are in proximity to the world you want to engage, out of the salt shaker, into the world. Salt has to be on it or in it to affect it. That has to do with proximity. That's intentional pursuing relationships. I'm not engaged. I need to get engaged. You can't stay in the Christian bubble. You can't stay in the insulated greenhouse of spiritual and biblical learning. I love the fellowship with God's people. You need this, but you are made to go out and make a difference in the world. 
And if you don't, you're not fulfilling the stewardship which is expected of you, the king of everything, the one in whom all authority is given on earth and in heaven, says you're to go. And while you're going, you're to make disciples. You're to be an impact player. You're not only to lead them to faith in Christ, you're to teach them how to live and walk like Christ, teaching them all things I've commanded you. And are you alone? You're not alone. I am with you all the way to the end of the age. Lo, I am with you. You're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you enjoy Christian fellowship. If you're a Christian, you're commissioned to get out of your Christian community into the world that desperately needs your influence. And that's intentional. And the longer you're a Christian, the easier it is to become insulated and absorbed into Christian community, and you don't ever influence and impact the world around you. And yes, it is uncomfortable. You go into places and you engage people who do not share your convictions. They talk about things that redden your face, not because you're angry, you're embarrassed. Yes, you encounter places where people say and do things that rub a Christian in a a way that is awkward or uncomfortable. But if you're not in the game, you have no influence or impact for those who need what you bring and you alone can bring it. If you understand that, would you say, man? That wasn't as hearty as I had hoped for. <laughs> Do you believe that? Amen. All right, and that's not just for Harry and those who have been to seminary. That's for every bona fide kingdom citizen. You are the salt of the earth. You have value. You need to get in proximity, and here's the other big idea, and we're going to expand on it today, and you need to be potent. You need to be high, concentrate, you need to be salty in the right kind of way. And we examined over these last weeks what increases your potency. Context of Luke chapter 4, Christ over you. Christ over everything, my possessions, anybody in my life, I love him more than I love them, I love him more than I love stuff. I love him more than I love myself. I'm denying myself. I'm taking up my cross. I'm following him. I am a disciple. I have counted the cost. I am a Christ over me Christian. Listen, you can debate all you want theologically about the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is not a biblically debatable issue. He is the Lord. He's the master. He says, follow me. Christ over Everything Christians are potent and lukewarm sometimes over some things, but not everything Christians are tasteless. They have no potency. They're low concentrate. Christ over you, Christians. That's where Jesus said, therefore, salt is good. Next verse, after talking about biblical discipleship. Category number two. A compelling conviction, an unshakable confidence that in my journey of influence for the kingdom of God, Christ is with me. We went to Joshua chapter 1. Before Joshua and the people of God entered the land of God, which was a place of influence and impact, a place of abundance and blessing, Joshua heard the words, I'm with you. I was with Moses. I'm going to be with you. 
You have to have a confidence because it's a courageous step you take to represent Jesus Christ in a hostile world. If God hated, or if people hated Jesus, they are going to find hostility and hate toward you. You want to test that? Just go out in some public sector or someplace today and declare yourself a person who believes men are men, women are women, and there's nothing in the middle. All 47 options that are now available for gender selection are not true. God made them male and female. Oh, you know what else he did? He intends for men to marry women and women to marry men. Go say that. You will not be popular. It takes courage to be a Christian. I'm not saying saying it in a way that's obnoxious and annoying and I'm better than you are. I'm talking about courageous, gracious speech. Because listen, you know what the salt includes? The truth. And you are a steward and a vessel of that truth. And therefore, you need to have an unshakable confidence that just like God was with Joshua, he's with me. Hebrews chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 13. Hey, what can men do to me? The Lord is with me. Number three, number three, we argue that potent Christians have the word of God in them and lived out by them. They have the word of God living in them. But the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, said to Joshua, not only am I with you, this book of the law, this revelation of God through the Torah, it shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate therein day and night. And then you'll be prosperous. You'll have good success. What is the success? The experience of abundant life in a land filled with giants and double-walled cities, and you will have a national impact so that people see a God who is great and worthy to be worshipped. You know Israel was a missionary nation. They weren't just the people of God selected by God to be blessed by God. They were agents and priests of the living God to bear witness to the greatness of God and connect people to God. You'll have success, Joshua. You'll inhabit this land of promise and blessing, and you'll have an impact on the nations. If this book, my word, is in you and lived out by you, that you may observe to do all that is written therein. Potency means you have the word of God abiding in you. Without me, you can do nothing. On the other hand, if my word, if I, you abide in me and my word abides in you, you what? Bear much fruit. And that fruit produces glory for God, which is the goal of God for which you exist. We looked at Job 28 last week. We argued that potent Christians not only have the word of God in them, lived out by them, but they have the wisdom of God flowing through them. We looked at Job 28 because Job is like a vivid color example that sometimes life is very, very hard. Unnavigable. Can't figure it out. Don't know what's going on. Propositions that you might try on to interpret the reality you're living in. But Job teaches us, number one, you don't know what only God knows. Two, you need wisdom which only God can provide. And the people who are living in difficult straits and circumstances, physically, emotionally, financially, need help from heaven. 
You can't dig enough in the earth to get what God alone provides, which is wisdom, which is his perspective on life. Wisdom is God's view on the world in which you live. And it's a step at a time, guidance from heaven. It's, it's like somebody offering you advice step by step to navigate what to do and when to do it and how to get where otherwise you wouldn't know to go. Who needs that? You need that. Who needs that? Anybody in your life that's in difficult places needs a friend, a brother, a neighbor, a Christian like you to offer perspective when nothing in the world can provide it. And these are people, these Christian brothers and sisters, these neighbors are people who dig it out, seek God's insight to it so they can deliver it, not just be blessed and benefited by it. Hey, here's a fact. Every neighbor in your neighborhood needs a Christian in their life. They just don't know when they're going to need you. Which means you've got to engage them so that when they need you, you're available to them. You know why? You're salt. You're an agent of impact. That's who you are, and you're not going to be potent influence and impact if, in fact, you don't have the wisdom of God flowing through you, the word of God in you, lived out by you, you'll have no credibility and influence. If you have no courage and confidence, if you don't have a conviction, hey, I'm something. I'm not just self-appointed. I am God-appointed. I'm not proud. I'm pleased and humbled that God would put me in the world to advance his glory and to curb the destruction that's so prevalent. Listen, Cornerstone, you are not impotent. Your children don't have to walk away. Listen, it's a scary statistic when kids who graduate from high school, the vast majority of them graduating from high school or part of a church don't come back to church. And yes, it's true, secular universities are just um, toxic installments of foolishness and, and thinking that is so alien to reality and so destructive to the human situation. It's true. But I'm going to argue this. If you're a high, potent, concentrate Christian parent, or grandparent, you're a difference maker in the life of your child. They may wander, but they've been influenced. And they will know where to go. Don't let them walk because you don't have a kind of Christian testament. I told the students this week when I had the opportunity to talk to them on Tuesday. Here's one of the things I've observed as a pastor and the head of a Christian school once upon a time in the state of Alabama. Christian school students grown up in the church, followers, or members of the family of God. Kids who grow up in Christian spaces often get calloused to the things they hear over and over and over and don't see vivid reality displayed in their life. It's a way of life. It's not life. It's Christian culture. Let me tell you what Christian culture is. Like eating cardboard. It's not real. It's styrofoam. It's not the real thing. You don't eat the box. You want what's in the box. Christian culture can masquerade as Christianity. 
Now, I know that's not what you want. But that's what Christian young people often see in the context of Christian homes, Christian schools, Christian churches. They see culture. They don't see reality. And it confuses them. And then people like me who stand up and talk about God live in contradiction to that. Somebody discovers it. Somebody finds out about it. I'm I'm represented as what you didn't know I was, a hypocrite. And it undermines every bit of confidence in the reality of the claims of what it means to be a Christian and the realities thereof. They need to see it at church. They need to see it in you. And you know, let me let me boil this number seven piece down to you. They need to see in you a changed heart and a changing heart. And this is my last ingredient for this time, because I'll come back with some more sometime later. Potent Christians have a changed heart, and they have a changing heart. Heart change is not behavioral conformity. I tell the students, your behavior matters, but your heart matters more. You know why I say that? Because you can behave just right. Everybody in the room can think you're a follower of Jesus and your heart can be far from God. This people, Jesus said, here's a massive indictment to the covenant people of God or to be influencers for the glory of God and a promoter of the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. And he looks at them and says, you know what? You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me which indicates the fact that I can have the look and the sounds and not have the reality. Because Christianity, the goal of biblical Christianity, is not religious activity. It's a changed heart. It's not just doctrinal capacity. It's a changed heart. Yes, doctrine influences the wealth of my heart. Yes, my heart affects my behavior. But biblical Christianity is lived from the inside out or it is not Christian. I'll tell you what that is. That's what makes Christianity potent. And I'm going to argue this, and it also makes it sustainable. Because if your heart is changed and changing, you have the horsepower to live it. It's possible to honor God with your lips, external Christianity. But I'll tell you what that is, tasteless. And it's deadly. Because the heart of Christianity, no matter how well you perform on the outside, is measured by what's going on on the inside. Which is why the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 heard the words, Hey, I know your works. I know how faithful you are to good doctrine. I know how zealous you are to deal with people who deviate from good doctrine. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have what? You've left your first, say it, love. Man looks on the outward things. God looks on the, say it, heart. You can dress up, you can clean up, you can sound good, you can attend this church every Sunday. You can go through all of it. And if this piece of it isn't changed and changing, you don't have it. You're good for nothing. 
except to be tossed out and trampled underfoot. You know why? Because that kind of salt is useless. So heart matters. Heart style matters. Christianity involves a new heart. If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. You're not just a reformed human being. You're a brand new, made by God human being, born from above. Not only relieved of your sin debt, you have imputed like a gift. Impute means to give legally, a forensic word, which means Harry Walls, as a Christian, by faith in Jesus Christ, is not only forgiven of my sin farther than the East is from the West, Buried in the deepest sea, no indictment. The certificate of debt that I owe was nailed to the cross. I'm relieved of it, all of it. And beyond that, I am gifted with a righteousness perfect, not my own. I am given the righteousness of Christ as a gift, his perfect life for my debt and my sin Jesus Christ changes you and declares you righteous. You're a new creation. Everything about you becomes new. You're justified by grace through faith. Can any of God's people say amen to that gospel grace? Listen, don't be deceived. Real Christians are changed. I get to do membership interviews. I just did one this morning. Evidence of change, yeah. The way I used to talk, I don't talk that way anymore. When I got saved, and I'm quoting, my potty mouth went away. You know what? That's what Christians experience. Not always and not instantly. That's a gift and blessing. I had a buddy who used to drink like a sailor when I was a student at Brown. Got saved, stopped drinking the next day. That's a gift from heaven. That's changed. My attitudes changed. My affections changed. What I love, my intellect, how I think, what I think about, my convictions, what I believe and what I'm willing to resolve to do changes. Christians change or they're not Christians. Cornerstone, if you claim to be a Christian, there ought to be a changed heart in you and an ongoing changing heart in you. I will give them one heart, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone. This is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. I'll take the heart of stone, which is out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. I'll give them a new heart. Born again, born from above. Philippians 1, 6. Everybody's kind of favorite verse if you're a Christian for any length of time. You ought to own its truth, not just know its content. He who began a good work. Who's that? God. Will continue to perform it. He put in hairy walls a new heart. He changed me. And he is committed to continuing to change me until I'm conformed to the image of Christ. He who began a good work will continue to perform it. 
You know, that's called sanctification. Sanctification is becoming like Christ. It's set apart by Him, for Him, and He is the agent of influence through His Word, in assistance with His people, but the Spirit of God is the agent of influence to keep on changing my heart until the day he returns. Those he foreknew, Romans chapter 8, this is God talking. Paul, inspired, says those who God foreknew. You know what foreknow is. And just not look into the future and go, oh, Harry's going to pick me. I'm going to pick him. I like how he's doing this. I I like him. I'm going to pick him. That is not what foreknow means. It means to foreordain. The word know is intimacy. I loved Harry intimately in advance. I loved him ahead of time. Ahead of what? Before he was born. Before he did anything. He foreknew me. He loved me in advance. And because he loved me in advance, and it's unconditional, not merited, not foreseen, foreknow means to love me intimately ahead of time. Those he foreknew, he predestined. He circled in the list of humanity my name and determined that he would justify me because he loved me in advance, because he chose me. Not because he saw good in me. Those he foreknew, He predestined, those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified. And those he justifies, you know what he does for them? He glorifies. You know what Christians are? Changed. And you know what else they are? Changing. And you know why they're changing? Because God is real and he does what he says he will do. He transforms people from the inside out and he compels them by his word, by his spirit, through his people to become what he saved them and justified them to be, like Christ. And you know what that is? Potent. Our pastor's going through Ephesians. I love Ephesians 1, that prayer. I pray, Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. You know what enlightened means. Enlightened means you see something you never saw. It's like somebody's pointing out something in the distance. There it is, there it is, there it is. Do you see it? Do you see it? No, I don't see it, I don't see it. And then all of a sudden, you go, I see it. The word enlightened is to see something you haven't seen. It's there. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened and that the enlightening of your heart might expose or illuminate for you the hope of your calling. And you know what the hope of the calling is? The hope of a brand new beginning. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. Listen, you know about this. You fumble the ball so badly, you're just begging for an opportunity for a restart. You know what Christianity is? A brand new beginning. Whatever baggage you're carrying, whatever sin you're guilty of and ashamed of and under the threat of judgment for, when you become a Christian, you have the hope of a new beginning. And listen to me. That calling is the 
is the hope of presently changing. The guy who got saved at the age of six is not the guy who stands before you at the age of 63. And it is not the product of simply being in places where the Bible's taught. It is the product of being in places where the truth is taught and the Spirit of God is working His work out in me so that I look more like His favorite son. Here's my argument, and this is what's got me inflamed this morning for you. The world needs real Christians who have a new heart Not a plastic one, not a religious one, not a go-through-the-motions one. They need a Christian in their world, salting their life, who actually is different, and they are a witness of a lifestyle that's different, and they're a witness of a changing lifestyle. Because what Christians aren't? Finished. But the reality of following Christ is the reality of being an everyday worshiper, And being an everyday, I encounter God's grace as I declare myself in need of the change that I've just discovered is necessary in my life. I want to give you a couple of words in the time that I have, and we're going to use Malachi 1 for one of them. And we're going to use 1 Samuel 7 for the second one of them. Now you say, man, that is a long introduction. (laughs) Okay, let me tell you what that is. That is a Christian exhorting his brothers and sisters to own this. Because this matters. There is no reason for your world to look like it does unless you don't bring to the table what you are. You're a compelling, convicting, impactful person to somebody. And if you're not potent and you're not in the game, you forfeit the game. Two words. First word is worship. The second word is repentance. Christians are people with a changed heart. And part of that essential change involves what they worship and who they serve. The first word is worship, and it involves the countercultural conviction that the primary pers- purpose of my life is to bring glory to God and not myself. One of the biggest changes of heart that occurs is you come, you move from me centric to God centric. Heart change involves worship. We worship, every human being worships. The question is, what or whom do you worship? And the heart transformation that is incredibly potent is when you move from self-interest to Christ-interest. The primary purpose of your life is to bring glory to God, not yourself. It is a heart style, and it is a lifestyle. Of what? Worship. A lifestyle where God is so valuable to you and His honor so weighty that it colors, shapes, and motivates everything you do. Whether we eat or drink, we're to do what? What are we to do? Bring glory, do it all for the glory of God. As an act of worship. You mean eating? Yes. Drinking? Yes. Well, that must mean playing and studying and working and hobbying and whatever else life brings about 
We're to do it for the glory of God, which means it needs to be, all of it, an act of worship. Everything I do is to live for God and not for myself. You live for His honor, not your own. Worship involves a lifestyle of fearing God and honoring Him by living for Him and not yourself. I'll tell you what tasteless Christianity is. Me-centric Christianity. Defective. Less than my best. Worship for a God who's worthy of it and who made me for it. I don't know. I might have it on my tombstone because I quote it so much. Isaiah 43, 7. I formed you for my glory. Not yours. For me. Which means your life is about me. Your life is to promote me. Your life is to reveal me. Your life is for me. You are a worshiper by creation. And you're a worshiper by redemption. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in what? Your body. Because of the mercies of God. Everybody's favorite section of Romans 12. Hey, because of the mercies of God, I'm to present myself a living sacrifice. You know what that is? Worship, which is my acceptable service of worship. Why? Because of redemption. Because he foreknew me. He loved me ahead of time. He, he predestined me. He called me. He justified me. And therefore, I had to live my life for him and not for myself. Malachi chapter 1. I think a preacher showed up today and not a teacher. Malachi chapter 1, listen to these words. The end of the Old Testament, God's about to be silent. He's disputing with his people. And one of his fundamental disputes with the people of God after they've enjoyed restoration to the land. This is Ezra and Nehemiah territory. This is when the temple has been built, rebuilt. This is when they should enjoy the privilege of restoration to the place of God and to the worship space. And God indicts his people people. And he says this, verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. This is just a statement of fact. That's what happens. Sons honor fathers, servants honor their masters. If I am a father, says God, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? And the people of God, the priest who despise my name, and the word despise means to empty of it of worth and value. They treat my name as as if it's worthless. My priests, my representatives who despise my name, this is what they say. How have we despised your name? We don't get it. What's the indictment all about? How have we not honored you? Verse 7, here's what God says. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, tainted, toxic, corrupt, rotting. But you say, how have we defiled you in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised? Let me tell you what God, they're saying, I don't get it. We don't get it. Here's what God says. Here's what you ought to get. You've treated me as worthless. You've taken one who is worthy and great and emptied him of worth and value. You're just demeaning him and despising him because you're bringing to the table of worship things that are not worthy of him. 
Verse 8, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? This is God to his people, his covenant people, the worshipers, the new worship place. Is it not evil that you bring me the sick and the blind? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of the heavenly armies and the hosts of heaven? Listen, would an earthly leader be satisfied with that? No, nor am I. Verse 9, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly? The answer to that is no. This is so sobering. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. You know what he just said? Is there nobody among you with the courage to recognize that this kind of worship, where you bringing me the less and the be- less than the best, you bring me the blind, you bring me the lame, you bring me the sick, You know what I'd like? I'd like somebody to step up and lock Grace Church's doors and every access to it because it would be better if nothing went on than for this to go on. I'd rather there be no worship that masquerades like this. And look at why, verse 11. Here's the ground of reason for the desire to have someone to close down the worship that's defective. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great where? Say it, among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. Watch it, verse 11. For my name will be great among the nations. Let me boil it down for you. The worship that God accepts that comes out of a changed heart who gets who he is versus who we are is a heart that brings the best to him in every category and altar of your life where you recognize and you represent what God means to you. You bring him the best you have because when you bring him your best, you represent him to the world, the nations. And you know what you say to them? He's a great king, and he's worthy of great worship. Let me tell you where your altar is. Wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you eat, wherever it is you do what you do, it's an opportunity to give to God what is worthy of one so great. And when you give your best, when you worship him and honor him and bear witness to him, when you're integrous, honorable, humble, loving, when you're a Christian in the context of the world in which you live and play and you treat everything as an act of worship and you offer your best for his glory, guess what he gets? Honor among the nations. That's what missionaries do. They're ambassadors who represent the one who sent them, and you represent him by what you offer to him in the lifestyle of worship that is your life. You know what the world needs? Salty Christians. 
You know what they need? Christians who are salty because their heart is changed and their changing heart is revealed in a lifestyle of worship which undeniably says, you know what God is? Great. And you know what is required in that? Repentance. Real and regular repentance. Because guess what you don't always bring to God? Worthy worship. And instead of saying, God, what do you mean you're not happy with what I gave? When you recognize through his word, by his spirit, among his people, that what you're offering is less than what he's worthy of, you own it, take responsibility for it, confess it, renounce it, turn from it, and receive gracious forgiveness for it, and a restoration to a heart that is rightly related to him. How often are you to pray the Lord's Prayer? Daily. How do I know that? Give us this day our daily bread. When you pray, pray then in this way. The Lord's Prayer and the principles housed in it, the priorities housed in it, is an everyday prayer. Every day I'm desperately needy whether I know it or not. God, give me what I need today. Every day that's a part of my pursuit of God. But you know what else follows it? And today, after I ask you for daily bread, I'm going to ask you for something else. Let me ask you to forgive me for my debts. The implication is that I've got debts to be forgiven of today. And when the Spirit of God, by His grace, through His Word and through His people, illumines my heart with a conviction which is good, godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret. The goodness of God produces sorrow, and that sorrow is a good thing. Conviction is the best thing that will happen to you. Somehow we fostered this idea in Christian culture, if I'm guilty, i got to go hide. Listen, every person in the room who's honest knows what it's like to be guilty and sinful. And the beauty of Christianity is being in a community where you can actually acknowledge, I came up short. And nobody's going to look around and say, man, I can't believe you do something like that. Repentance is acknowledging that I've fallen short. I'm not worshiping him in a worthy way. This quality of life and behavior is inconsistent with my changed heart. I'll tell you what will help your children. Honest confession when you come up short. Not denial. Listen, I will say this. This is one of the things I love about Grace Church. I rarely have to convince anybody they ought to admit and confess something. It's part of the culture. That's a good culture. To be able to own it when you ought to own it. Deal with it when you ought to deal with it. Real repentance is, I've come up short and I'm turning around. I'm renouncing that as wrong and I'm resolving I'm heading in a new direction. It's godly sorrow. There's a sorrow of the world. Esau knew that sorrow, which produces what? Death. Judas was sorry. He threw the money back, but then he went and hanged himself. Esau didn't find repentance, even though he sought it with tears. 
You can be sorry, sorry over consequences, but biblical sorrow is the kind of sorrow that's sorry enough to change. It's clean, it's pure, it's good, it's painful because you're revealed to be less than best in your worship part, but it's something good for you. It's good to confess your sins, James 5, confess your sins to one another so that you might be what? Healed. This is what will kill you as a Christian. Isolation will kill you. Self-disclosure in the context of trusting relationships. Repentance is what leads to a pure heart. And a pure heart is the heart that God accepts as a worship tool. All right, we have to go to church. I know that. But I want to plan in your heart two big words today. Lifestyle of worship. Give your best for the best. The altar is whatever you're doing. I tell the student athletes, your altar's the court, could be the field. Wherever it is you do what you do, that's where you worship. Wherever you hang your hat, wherever you go to work, whatever neighborhood you live in, that's the altar upon which you're to give your best for the best so the world around you knows he is the best. His name is great. We need to restore his name. And we need to do it by high concentrate worship living that recognizes more than maybe we would like that we've fallen short. We own it, we repent of it, and we deal with it. Tell you what that does. It makes what we say real, relevant, and powerful. Can you say amen to that? All right, so what's the seventh ingredient? A changed and a changing heart. How do you know? It's a worship heart. It's a lifestyle of worship. And it's a heart that repents regularly and really. I didn't get to 1 Samuel 7, so someday in the future we'll talk about real repentance. Father, thank you for the time this morning, the opportunity to open your word, to exhort your people, to encourage them to be what you made them to be so that they can display your glory in the world in which they live. Salt is good unless it's tasteless. Help us to be tasty prompters of pleasure, provokers of thirst, powerful preservatives, pictures of purity that enable the world in which we live to see a God otherwise they would not know and declare him great because they see his greatness in us and through us as we live Christ among them. Lord, that's my prayer. And without you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name, amen.